Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And then John begins the personal address to seven churches in Asia. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time before I actually get into what I have read setting up our sermon or series of sermons, however long it'll take us, on the book of Revelation. There's there's some warnings that I want to uh, share with everybody about dealing in Revelation, some observations about some things that have happened with regard to our understanding and our study of Revelation that have proven to be quite embarrassing for the cause of Christianity. Then I'm going to kind, kind of give you some, some sort of a direction that we intend to go in this. But let me start off with, uh, first of all, saying that we have a rather inordinate infatuation with prophecy in this day and age. And I, I say that because if you want to go to your Christian bookstore and just look for books that have to do with Revelation or end times, uh, you'll find quite a large selection there. We're infatuated with it or mesmerized by it. Some preachers have made their entire ministry around prophecy and prophecy teaching. But along with our infatuation with prophecy, we have created for ourselves some rather embarrassing moments as well. Perhaps there's not a single book in the entire Bible that is as controversial and polarizing as the book of Revelation. It's filled with all of these mysterious symbols and grotesque beasts and terrifying scenarios. And it understandably provides a, a unique attraction for us. When I f- first went into ministry, I had more than one minister t- counsel me, stay away from the book of Revelation. Well, that's like hanging a wet paint sign on something. You, get a, you just have to touch it then, don't you? And I devoted many hours to studying the book of Revelation. And people find it invigorating trying to decode what this book is all about. For the past 200 years, 
there has been a, a futuristic interpretation of Revelation that has become wildly popular. It's, it mainly dominates fundamentalism. This has spawned a number of, in my honest opinion, third-rate overly sensationalized movies, as well as a number of best-selling books in the Christian genre by some authors that you might recognize, like Hal Lindsey, the, the popular late great planet Earth. Anybody who was around when that book was popular probably heard about it and very well may have read it. Salim Kurban, maybe that's a name you hadn't heard, but back whenever Hal Lindsey was having his heyday, there was a, a man named Salim Kurban who, the most famous book was probably 666. Now that'll get your attention, won't it? And maybe most notable among these names is Tim LaHaye and his famous Left Behind series. So while reveling in the intoxicating studies of the end times, uh, there's a whole lot of confusion that we find that arises uh, out of our sincere efforts to understand what is this book all about? And while many claim they have found the key to, un to unlocking the book of Revelation, uh, they don't all agree on how to unlock it. So everybody has a key, but they all have different keys. And much of the problem is, is we become so addicted to sensationalism. And any modern day teaching on Revelation uh, seems to feed right into that consumer demand for sensationalism. We just love to speculate about the future. And we get into Revelation and we see uh, seals being opened up and vials being poured out and trumpets being sounded. And in response to all these activities, things happening on earth with uh, the wormwood, the star falling and poisoning the waters and hailstones weighing 114 pounds apiece and a, a, a beast arising out of the sea. And along with some of the embarrassing things that have happened in connection with uh, prophecy and speculation is we've had people from time to time that have tried desperately to, to set dates for the end of the world, the return of Jesus, the beginning of the tribulation, the things having to do with the end times and they, they set all these dates. One of the most prolific offenders in, in this area has historically been the Jehovah's Witnesses. They have repeatedly set end-of-the-world dates uh, only to be humiliated time and time again. Uh, uh, first, they said the, the end of the world was 1874. And that didn't happen, so they reset it to 1878, four years later. And that didn't happen, so they reset it to three years later, 1881. And that didn't happen, so now they gave them a little breathing space, 1910 have time to sit back and reassess this, but now 1910 for sure, but that didn't happen. So eight years later is 1918. Now the world's going to come to an end. And of course, that kind of coincided with World War I, so they thought they had really hit the jackpot now. End of the world 1918, and the world's breaking out in war. This has got to be it, but it didn't happen to our knowledge. So they reset it in 1925. That didn't work. Now they really uh, egg on their face. They sat back and, and reevaluated their assessment. And it took them until 1975 to set uh, another 
end of the world date. Didn't happen in 75 there. And then after that, 1984. And then they've been quiet ever since. But it's not just Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, you, I mean, we uh, have our, had our own set of embarrassing date-setting experiences as well. We, it seemed like it brings out weirdness. Prophecy just brings out weirdness. Hey, everybody remember uh, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, the Wacko and Waco, remember that? And they had their own little cult down there. Uh, do you realize his ministry was based largely on a writing that he uh, had, had produced about uh, decoding the seven seals? And he had convinced his followers that they were the chosen people of God in the last days. And of course, you know the uh, infamous end of that uh, horrible, tragic uh, ending of that cult. And uh, it's not just the cults. Anybody... Uh, Back in the 70s, there was this story going around, this rumor going around about uh, this big computer over in Brussels, Belgium, that took up several stories of a building. Remember that? You remember that? And what do they call it? The Beast. Oh, you heard about it, didn't you? And you probably shared that with some people. Did you know there's a computer in Brussels, Belgium called The Beast? And that all came from a book that was written uh, by a man called Colin Deal. He, he, he actually put that story in his book. And uh, come to find out, his source was from a fictitious novel that had been written. It was not true at all. But that doesn't make any difference because we Christians can be real excitable and facts don't matter as long as it's sensational. Uh, or if you want to go back a little bit farther and talk about somebody you've probably never heard of, but there was a, a, a man named St. Martin. He was the Bishop of Tours, France. And he wrote in the 4th century, there is no doubt the Antichrist has already been born. Well, did he miss it? Still no Antichrist to this day. What about the schools of interpretation for the book of Revelation? You've got the... Uh, historical school that reads the book of Revelation and at this point they believe everything about Revelation has already been fulfilled and we're just looking back on it. And then you got the uh, futuristic school that believes that the greater part of Revelation is yet future for us. And then you got the preterist school that believes that Revelation is being fulfilled and has been fulfilled and is continuing to be fulfilled all along. So we're experiencing somewhere in the book of Revelation, even right now. Uh, where are you in prophecy? Uh, what, how do you describe yourself? Or, uh, what school of interpretation do you adhere to? Uh, are you a dispensationalist or not? Why are you staring blankly at me? <laughs> Dispensationalism is a hot commodity in the 19th, 20th, and 21st century, but, but not so much in previous centuries. What is dispensationalism? Let, let me just give you a, a quick rundown on that. I don't want to bore you with all these words, but these are things that are really very relevant terms in, in prophecy. Dispensationalism was really popularized by Darby, uh, probably helped introduce dispensationalism into the American culture, at least, American church. And uh, it basically just views God as having dealt with human beings in, in different 
eras, periods of time in different ways. Every, every dispensation, every little segment in which God dealt with people had its own set of rules and it had favorable beginnings and miserable endings. So you got the dispensation of innocence where it had favorable beginning with Adam and Eve but a miserable ending. And then it moved to the dispensation of conscience which had a favorable beginning but a miserable ending. And uh, then you have human government, the dispensation of law and the dispensation of grace. Dispensation. And so you've got these dispensations that people observe that God dealt differently with people during those times and held them to a a, a unique standard and, and judge them accordingly. That's dispensationalism. But along with dispensationalism goes a lot of other things that have become very popular as well. The concept of the rapture of the church uh, was popularized under dispensationalism. And uh, dispensationalism basically sees uh, Israel as continuing to have a purpose uh, in, in God's plan and ultimate fulfillment. But uh, those who are not dispensationalists uh, ultimately believe in what would be called replacement theology, which means that Israel is kaput. They are no more, and, and the church has arisen out of this, which is a combination of Jews and Gentiles and anybody who can get saved, and all the promises that were originally for Israel are now going to be fulfilled through the church. Are you uh, uh, adherent to a replacement theology or, or a continuation of the promises of Abraham or real Israel? And there's a lot of things to consider. After all, there's no Jew here today that can really trace themselves back to any tribe. Uh, the tribes, have, they're lost. They're gone. And we're all hyped up about the land of Israel, and I'm not trying to upset you today, but uh, the people who are Jews in Israel do not trace themselves back to the biblical Jews. Uh, they, they are imports from other areas of the country that came in and, and uh, uh, adopted Judaism as their religion, but they really don't trace themselves back to Abraham. Uh, Christians uh, particularly have a better chance of tracing themselves back to Abraham than, than the actual people who call them Jews living in Israel this time. So that's just something to really throw a monkey wrench in your theology as well. Let you think about that for a while. So is God's promises really on the nation of Israel today? Well I tend to think they are. But there's a lot of arguments surrounding this that makes me think hard about why I think that. And should make you think hard as well. So uh, are you a dispensationalist or not? Are you a, what about, what do you think about the millennium? And I think most of you know what a millennium is. It's referring to a thousand years when Christ will, we dispensationalists believe that Christ will reign here on earth for a thousand years during which time there will be no natural death and, and uh, all rebellion will be put down and the desert will bloom like a rose and the curse will be lifted and all kinds of things for a thousand years. But are you a, a premillennialist? Or are you an amillennialist like Jack Hayford that believes that we are actually uh, fulfilling the living in the millennium right now and it's just, it's just a symbolic, uh, it's not a literal thousand years. It's a symbolic description of what we are living in right now. Uh, or are you a postmillennialist? Where Jesus Christ comes back for premillennialists at the beginning of the millennium, but amillennialists think we're right in the middle of the, all of this, or literally there is no true thousand year millennium, and postmillennialists that believe that Jesus is coming back at the end of the thousand years. 
so what do you think about the tribulation of the church? Are we going through it or not? Are you pre-trib? Uh, where the church is caught away and then tribulation happens? Most of you are praying that you are. Who wants? I mean, we, we believe these things out of personal convenience. You give me a choice if I want to believe the church is going through the tribulation or not. I choose all day long. No, we're not. God's going to rescue us out of here. Or are you mid-trib? Going over to the 12th chapter of Revelation and seeing whenever that man-child was brought forth and the dragon's ready to consume him and the man-child's caught up and some people see that as the church. Right in the middle of the tribulation, the church would go through half of it just to get a little spanking from God. Just get a little correction and then after that, before the worst comes, we're gone. Or are you uh, post-trib? Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. And I'm not going to take a vote today because I don't want you divided before I get to preach to you. And so who says Revelation's easy? And all these things that, that are variations on what we think about. I mean, the early church fathers were pre-millennials, but they were post-trib. Talk about a combination there. See, Re Revelation is more than a prophetic roadmap, and that's the reason I have a, a, an interest in preaching this for you today, is all the speculative confusion aside, Revelation has another value. And it's not just trying to decode the beast and the 666. Oh, there's a lot of sensationalism goes along with that. People keep looking at things that are happening in this day and age and they're declaring, well, that must, he must be the Antichrist. Or this must be the mark of the beast. They've made the mark of the beast those little uh, barcodes that you scan. When those first came out to, to help facilitate easy pricing for stores, uh, that must be the mark of the beast. Now we're getting close to people having chips implanted that you can scan this and it has personal information. And I said, well, that must be the mark of the beast. So every little thing that happens, we keep declaring this must be the fulfillment of, this must be the mark of the beast. And we all become prophetic experts. And how many times have you heard somebody that has looked at modern day events and they said, well, the Bible says... Well, what does the Bible say? And they'll make something up because it makes them sound smarter than you. But most of the time when people say, but the Bible says, they, the Bible didn't say that at all. But they've heard somebody say that the Bible says that. So here we're on all this, this, this confusion and say, Pastor, you're going to clear all that up for us in this Revelation study? No. And then set it all aside. And I'm going to tell you that John was inspired by Jesus Christ to write a letter to the churches. And in the book of Revelation, those first two or three chapters are not the limited, restricted message to the churches. The entire book of Revelation is a message to the churches. And you have to read the book of Revelation understanding what was John not just trying to tell us, the church, but what was John trying to tell the seven churches in Asia? He didn't stop telling the seven churches in Asia something relevant, pertinent, applicable to them by the end of the third chapter. He didn't write those first two or three, the first three chapters and, and to the churches and say, now, the rest of it, has no meaning for you and you have no hope of understanding but I'm going to write it anyway. No, he wrote the whole thing 
to the churches. And it was a message to them. What you find in the book of Revelation is a solid reinforcement of some of the most, uh, the greatest foundational truths of Christianity. If you read the book of Revelation again, read it with this in mind. Buried beneath all that rubble of the overly sensationalized teachings on Revelation we hear today, you'll find the following truths strongly emphasized in the book of Revelation. Number one, God is majestic. Number two, Jesus is heaven's lamb slain for the sinners of the world. That's a major message of this book. But how many times do you hear prophecy teachers tell you about that? They want to tell you about the false prophet and the beast and mystery Babylon, the great harlot that sits on many waters. The book of Revelation tells us that God's judgments are a testimony to a skeptical world that God will right the wrong. He will avenge his people. A message in Revelation is sin does not go unpunished. God will see to that. Revelation tells us God can and will accomplish his will through a very small remnant, even against the greatest odds, he will prevail. Revelation teaches us that ultimately proclaiming Christ and clinging to him will invite persecution. It teaches us that Jesus Christ is worth dying for. It teaches us there is a radical contrast between God's righteous and holy kingdom and the wicked kingdom of this world. It teaches us the hope that God has prepared for us and how it far exceeds our present human sufferings. It teaches us God's plan ultimately includes representatives of all peoples and nations and tongues. And it teaches us most powerfully and most, most prominently, more than anything else you've ever heard from Revelation, it teaches us as it is repeated throughout the book, Jesus Christ is Lord. And those seven churches in Asia needed to hear those things and nail down their theology and rest assured on these truths. Now in the first chapter and the third verse, we read, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now you're sitting in one of those churches in Asia. And a letter has been written to the churches penned by John in exile on Patmos, a criminal's island. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he caught a great vision of the majestic Christ. And being constantly reminded, write it, write it, write it to the seven churches. And John writes to them, and this letter is circulated to the churches. Read it and pass it on. 
Maybe it had been hand copied. But the seven churches read this. And in this third verse, there's a blessing pronounced in those churches. First of all, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. As the letter comes, and the church gathers together, and the reader stands up and says, I have a special letter. It is a message directly from Jesus Christ through John. Let us hear what it has to say. And he begins to read. Can you imagine reading the book of Revelation to the church? But they listen, and they didn't check out after the third chapter. They listened because Jesus wanted to tell them something. So they sit there and they listen. And the blessing here is blessed is the man who's going to stand in front of the church and read this. Blessed is the person in the congregation who hears and obeys and responds and does the appropriate thing, having heard what was just read to you. Blessing is the reader. Blessed is the listener. Now, that puts it right back in the context of what this letter is all about. Not just us today. Blessed is the reader me blessed is the listener and nobody's listening to me but it puts it in the context of this letter being read before those churches and what a blessing it is to receive the message and to respond accordingly to what was being told them and another important thought from verse 3 is the expectation of a clear overarching message of the letter did you catch that when I read verse 3 what is the overarching message how can those who hear be blessed for receiving and obeying the message if there's no clear message to respond to if they're so totally confused how can you say blessed is the one who hears it understands it and receives it and believes it if they're saying if they're saying I don't have a clue what this is all about but verse 3 indicates this is a clear message. It is intended to be a clear message. This is more than information. This is a call to action for the church throughout the book of Revelation. It's a message to the churches in this book that extends far beyond the individual messages in the second and third chapter, but it goes on from the fourth chapter on to the end of the book, a message for all the churches. And the purpose, in a nutshell, is to understand the state of the churches that was being written to there in Asia. They were facing severe persecution in this day and hour. We're not facing severe persecution. Our biggest problem today is ugly stains on our carpet. We're not facing persecution. What are we going to do about these coffee stains? And these people were being progressively and severely persecuted. And Jesus said they need some reinforcement. And he visited John on the Lord's day. He said, John, we need to help these churches. Because you see, what happens when churches are being persecuted is they are being presented with a very distinct opportunity to compromise, to escape persecution. 
That was what they were battling. They were on the precipice, so to speak. They were at that critical juncture, so to speak. And God was observing and watching the churches. And God was saying, they're teetering. And if you read that individual, personalized, customized message to the churches, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Philadelphia, if you read these, Laodicea, you see that they were in various states of spiritual condition. Some good, some not so good, some horrible, just about gone. God says we need to talk to these churches because in the face of persecution, things are happening in the church that are no good. For if the government is pressing down on the church and bringing heavier and harder persecution, then they might be tempted to not make Jesus Christ King of kings and Lord of lords, but just another king, another lord, to keep them offending the rulers, the dictators of this world. That's why the message is so important. Jesus Christ is king. He is Lord over all. You cannot compromise that. And you read the letters, the personalized portions to the churches, and they were compromising. Sin was coming into the church. They were accommodating things that the church was supposed to be standing against. The church will find its place itself in the place many times in this world today where the things that the world is doing, the things that the world is promoting are ungodly, unbiblical, unhealthy, immoral. And the church has to take a stand. And it will not make you popular. And we're even living in a day and age now when laws are being manipulated and being created and being interpreted by the judicial that are bringing judgment against Christians who are taking a stand for their biblical morality. You're seeing it happen. And it's almost like we need a letter from God too. Stand strong. Don't yield. Don't give in to these things. Members of the congregation have a personal responsibility as well as the church has a responsibility. The church cannot be compromising. The American church is crumbling because of these kind of things that are confronting us. In some cases, the leadership is charting a new contemporary course for the church to keep the church relevant, to keep the crowd up, to keep the sanctuary full. They're adopting the world's ideals and philosophies. But the rot of the American church is not solely from the leadership. It's also from the congregation. Because the leadership of the church can hold the line steady. We can put the line in the sand and say, this is it. We can draw things in white and black and no gray shades. But if the members of the congregation don't agree with that and live according to that, the church still rots at the core. Because the leadership can take a strong biblical stance, and if the people don't adhere to that, we still have a problem. We have a responsibility as individual Christians. We can say we believe in the Bible. 
We can say we believe in what it teaches us about sin and holiness, but it's hypocritical to live a lifestyle that contradicts biblical principles if you say you believe in the Bible. You cannot call yourself a Christian and commit adultery or fornication. You cannot call yourself a Christian and shack up with somebody as becoming so popular today or it is just passe to forget about the proper engagement and the proper marriage and reserving yourself in holiness and purity and young people just to get together and to just live together to experiment and they are tearing the foundation out from underneath the holy institution of marriage. But I can preach it but the congregation doesn't live it. It doesn't help the church. Can't call yourself a Christian and steal from the people you work for. You can't call yourself a Christian and think abortion is a woman's right. It's not a woman's right. It's, a, it's not a health issue. It is murder. can't call yourself a Christian and believe everyone has a right to choose their gender. God created them male and female. End of discussion. You just can't call yourself a Christian and contradict the teachings of God's word. It doesn't work. You can't call yourself a Christian and have same-sex relationships. You can't call yourself a Christian and have a sewer mouth. But Jesus said whatever comes out of your mouth originates in the heart. That's where the problem is. It's not just a filthy mouth. It's a rotten heart. The American church is compromising because we have lost our sense of holiness. We have not grabbed a hold of that holy, majestic vision of Jesus Christ that John saw there on Patmos. If we could catch that vision again, we wouldn't be toying around and playing with sin like the church is. He's holy, he's righteous, and all unholiness and all sinfulness is unpleasing to him. See, the temptations to surrender to the pressures of this world and the pressures of our culture and the pressures of popular opinion and the pressures of laws of the land that are contradictory to the laws of God, these are more dangerous to the church than who happens to be in the White House or which party happens to be in control of Congress. We worry an awful lot about that, which party is going to control our nation. But I'm more worried about we as individuals in the church, are we compromising our lives? And it says in that third verse, blessed are those who hear, and take heart what is written in it because the time is near. The logical question is, time for what? What time is near? I know that we immediately think about the time of Jesus Christ coming is near. But John wrote this to the seven churches in Asia and said his coming is near. It's been 2,000 years. It's a little hard to defend. What John meant when he said Jesus Christ is coming very, 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 very soon. You better live right. And then 2,000 years later, he hadn't come yet. Of course, one thing we do have to admit is you have to live every day 
with the mentality he could come at any moment. Now, if you've ever heard any prophecy teachers that have, they consider themselves self-appointed experts, and they've told you every prophecy has now been fulfilled and Jesus can come back. Turn the TV off when you hear him say that. Switch over and watch gun smoke reruns or anything. But forget about this old thing. All the prophecies have been fulfilled. Now Jesus can come. There was never one prophecy that had to be fulfilled for Jesus to come. He's on his own timetable. Just think about it. It's pure logic. Had there been any, all you had to do is wait for that first before you start preaching Jesus is coming any moment now. But the message has always been that Christ could come at any moment. But whenever John was saying the time is near, he wasn't necessarily saying the time of Jesus coming is near because he didn't know it was. Could be. And if, if John would have said, now the time could be near, we would understand what he was saying. But he said, time is near. And what John was talking about to those churches is what you're about to go through, what it's going to take to continue to be the church that God wants you to be, what it's going to take for you to continue to stand for Jesus Christ, the things that are going to confront you, the temptations, the trials, the tribulations you will be going through, it's right up on us, people. The time is near. Now, what, what are the last days? It helps you to understand theologically the correct definition of last days. And if you think last days is just a, a, a small section on God's calendar that we're now living in, that Martin Luther wasn't living in the last days because that was several hundred years ago, but we are. You, you don't understand the biblical theological definition of last days. Last days is technically everything from Christ to Christ. From his first advent here to his second coming. That all is last days. Now when you read it like that and you talk about Paul talking about the last days, we are in last days, have been for a long time. Because in the whole scope of God's plan from the beginning, Adam wasn't in the last days. There was a lot yet to happen before we got down to the first coming of the Messiah. But after he came, he introduced that last phase, which we are in right now. The last days. Now the end times is slightly different. Because the end times is a slice of the last days. <laughs> that draws even closer and closer to the actual return of Jesus Christ. So when are the end times? I, I, I'd like to think it's right now. But I've seen a lot smarter people than me throughout the centuries that missed it by a few hundred years. But I think we've got a whole lot more going for us in speculating that we're in the in times of the last days first of all it doesn't look like the world we're living on is sustainable for another 2,000 years natural resources are being depleted they didn't have that problem back when they were driving chariots but the more modern we become and more we begin to consume our, our uh, petroleum and uh, fresh water things are drying up population explosion new diseases living in a very small world now where diseases just spread 
around the world and the way we're able to travel from the United States to Europe. We can take things we got over here that would never reach Europe a thousand years ago. We'll take it over there tomorrow and spread it. We're living in a world that is unlike any other age we have ever known. So I, I am convinced that it's at least at the bare minimum, it's testimony of one thing. We are so much closer now than we have ever been before. And I know that sounds kind of overly obvious. But every day that ticks by, we're closer. And to see how insane this world is, how crazy it is, to see that we have the power, nuclear power, to just blow this world up at, at any moment with the nations that have nuclear arms and the ability to bring mass destruction. Do you realize that before we ever get around to destroying ourselves, God's going to come back and rescue us from us? He's not going to let us completely obliterate the world. So these people are running around thinking this world is going to come to a, a cataclysmic end because of nuclear water. It, it, it's, God's going to intervene. He, he wants a chance to fulfill his plan before we blow everything up and destroy that. And he's never late. So you think man's got his finger on the button? God's got his finger on the button too. We could almost envision Jesus perched on the portals of glory, ready to go. His eye on the Father, and the Father giving him just one of these, just any minute, just, just any minute now, go. He's ready to come. The time is near. What time? The time of great persecution coming against the church. The time of great struggles for the church to survive against the evil tides in this world. That was right up on the churches. These ridiculous, foolish, non-productive efforts at date setting. Just this week, how convenient that I'm preaching this. And just this week, somebody came out with another claim that the Bible says... Jesus Christ is coming back June 24th. And aren't you glad that, I mean, if we had them in for Facebook, I'd have never saw that, and I couldn't be ready. But thank God, well, I now know Jesus is coming June 24th. The Bible doesn't say that, period. But there's a predictable number of people who will buy into this, and they'll spread a little panic for their 15 minutes of notoriety. You can't set dates. Jonathan Edwards, the, the great famous uh, early American preacher, most famous for his sermon, Sinners in the hang Hands of an Angry God, and, and, and a respected theologian as well. He, he believed God was using the, using the awakening to usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Of course, we've seen We've seen that vacillate. It went from a great awakening where there was a great spiritual climate in America to where there's no spiritual climate in America. So it didn't happen with what Jonathan Edwards had hoped would be. William Booth, leader of the Salvation Army, believed God had raised him up and was using him and the Salvation Army to fully establish his kingdom here on earth. He was very sincere, but it didn't happen that way. 
And as 1899 turned to 1900, people took out full-page ads in the New York papers and the Chicago papers announcing that Jesus was coming back at the turn of the century. Of course, it didn't quite happen at the turn of the century, but when World War I came, then they thought, well, we just missed it by a little bit. After all, with God, a thousand years is a day, and a day is a thousand years. What, 17 years? And then, when we turn the century again, remember the Y2K scare? Everything was going to, to go nuts whenever the clocks ticked over because we were so undergirded by computers and computers were not adaptable to the, to the new date. And so uh, whenever we turned to that new century and the new millennium, there was going to be chaos. And, and surely anytime there's a chaos, it's a good time for Jesus to come. Didn't happen. Over about 1900 years closer than John was. And then the churches of Asia. And the most foolish thing we could do is live without a sense of urgency. We dare not take a casual approach to this life. We can't live like we've got plenty of time. Now, I like being on time. I hate tardiness. I like being early. I'm early so I can be on time. Running late, you don't understand what it does to my heart and my soul. I'm a, I'm a bundle of anxiety when I'm late. I'm ready to explode when I'm late. I should have been there 15 minutes ago. Now they probably are going to make me do push-ups when I get there. I just can't stand being late. But I know some people that don't care. Late's a lifestyle for them. It's a casual attitude. Well, you might get by with that in this world, but I'll tell you when it's coming to the issue of Jesus Christ coming back, you can't be so casual. That's something that we have to be alert about and prepared for at all times. We can't let our casual lifestyle here on earth, I'll get there when I get there, doesn't work with the coming of Jesus. You've got to have this attitude, I am packed and ready to go. I, I saw a, a, a biography on a basketball coach, a high school, a college basketball coach that he had coached a, a little obscure college and he had an opportunity to move to a bigger college. And the opportunity kept eluding him, though he was a brilliant coach. And in this documentary I was watching, uh, I found it so interesting because they were telling the story of this this coach's father, elderly man and they had discovered that for an extended period of time years his father had a suitcase in his bedroom and they discovered said, what's this suitcase always here for? He said, 
I'm packed. And when my son gets the job, I'm ready to go. I wonder how many of you are packed and ready to go. You're so convinced. You're so convicted. You know this is going to be it. You're packed and ready to go. None of this business, I'll get ready. <laughs> when it looks like it's getting serious, I'll get ready. I hope and pray every one of you believe Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. I hope and pray every one of you are walking with him, fellowshipping with him. Your, your, your salvation is, is, is sure. Your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But if there's anybody here, you do not know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. And you think you're going to play the game? You're going to game the system. You think when it gets really serious, I'll get really serious. I'm telling you, if you aren't packed and ready, you're not going to make it. Are you packed and ready? I don't want to be caught unprepared. Readiness puts me at ease. I can sleep at night because I'm ready. I can drive through crazy traffic because I know I'm ready. I can relax through the day because I know I'm ready. I don't have any anxiety living in this world because I know I'm ready. And I don't know when he's coming, but I know he's coming. Would you bow your heads?